Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to episode 16 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to be interviewing Raymond Floyd today. Raymond has had a career leading the operations of some of the largest petrochemical and mining organizations in the world. His teams were some of the first to be recognized for excellence in operations, winning the Shingo Prize and other prestigious awards. Raymond is the author of the Shingo Prize winning book, Liquid Lean, Developing Lean Cultures in the Process Industries, and another book, A Culture of Rapid Improvement, Creating and Sustaining Engaged Workforces. Let's get into the episode. Raymond, I really appreciate having you on the podcast today. Yeah, good to be with you. Raymond, do you mind sharing some of your backstory of your career and what first got you into the area of operational excellence? Mm. Yeah, I think the, the, the interesting thing uh, was that I actually started my engineering career at General Motors uh, in 1970, so I've been at this a while. Uh, but as a result of working in the U.S. auto industry at that time, we began to understand what was happening in the Japanese auto industry. Uh, and, and that included what was then called just in time, what's currently called lean. Uh, but after 10 years with GM, I was, I was actually recruited to go to Exxon and, and, and work in their chemical business. And I took lean understanding with me and, and uh, kind of as, as, as we learned in the U.S. auto industry, uh, as soon as we began to introduce lean manufacturing, everyone said, oh, that's uh, dependent on the Japanese culture. It works fine in the Japanese auto industry, but it won't work in the U.S. auto industry. But then, of course, it did. Uh, and when we got to chemicals, everyone said, oh, that works okay in discrete manufacturing, but it won't work in chemicals. And they had their, their set of reasons why it wouldn't. But, but again, of course, it did. And we're now seeing lean expand into all sorts of things. My daughters are both physicians, and they're beginning to see some 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 touches of lean practice in in, uh, in the hospitals where, where where they work, setting up the, the operating rooms and things of that sort. So so it does in fact uh, work in a way that can be uh, adjusted to apply to almost any activity that you that, that you have in mind. Raymond, one thing when we caught up yesterday, you said that I found really impressive is that you said when you were rolling it at lean out or improvement out at Exxon to win the Shingo prize, you didn't really see that you were deploying lean as such. You were, you were the operations manager. I understand you didn't have a, like a lean leader or anything like that. You were leading it from the top. Uh, yeah. You, you, you asked me, you know, uh, why I was staying in, in, in lean practice for, for so many years and, and, I have to admit, I never actually thought of myself as being in lean practice. Uh, at the time we won the Shingo Prize, I was the global head of Exxon's uh, synthetic rubber business. And what we were doing was running the synthetic rubber business in the best way we knew how. And, uh, following that, I went to uh, become site manager of, of Exxon Baytown, which is uh, the largest petrochemical complex in North America. Uh, and again, I didn't think we were, were practicing lean. What we were doing was running that complex in the best way possible. Kind of you know from from there throughout the rest of my career, including when when I went to Canada and, and, and began running mines, uh, I was just running mines. I, I I wasn't practicing lean. I think there's something so much in that because when you said that to me, I was like, right, well, you know, you weren't leading this as something different, and you're leading it from the top. 
as if this is just the way we're going to go and we're going to improve what we do rather than being some external type yeah. of thing. Yeah, I guess the, 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 the thing that I tell people, though, is uh, no one would ever consider that I was at the top of Exxon. Uh, I was at the top of the, 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 the pieces of Exxon that they gave me. And, and people often say, well, you know, this needs to be led from the top. And, and I always respond, no. Uh, anybody can lead this from the top of whatever responsibility they've been given. You don't have to be at the top of the whole organization. You have to be leading from the top of your own organization within the responsibility that you have. Uh, another question that I frequently get, you know, I, I, I made a presentation one time and a person put up his hand and said, uh, we've been at this for six years. When can we expect to see some results? Uh, and, and my answer was four years ago. Uh, if, if it takes more than two years to get really good results, you, you're, you're not doing the right thing somehow. Uh, in fact, I, I usually break it up in, in the four six-month segments. You know, the, the, the first six months are really setting the basis. Uh, but at the end of the first six months, you ought to have uh, representative uh, experiences scattered throughout your organization of what you expect to see. And then you spend the next six months uh, uh, taking those original teams apart and spreading them out so that you have experienced team leaders and lots of teams. And, and, and at the end of, of, of the first year, you ought to have many more teams in progress. And, uh, at the end of that six months, you take those teams apart and, and, and create more teams uh, with experienced leaders on each team. Uh, and, and, and really, by the time you've gone through two years in that sort of cycle, uh, there should be visible evidence of lean practice throughout your entire organization. And, and then it will continuously get better as people get more experienced and, and, and you have uh, a lot more examples that people can follow. One of the very easiest ways to propagate improvement is to have one team reproduce something that another team has already done. Uh, which is why I like the, the uh, uh, visible demonstrations of what people are doing. So uh, the, the other reason I like the visible demonstration of what people are doing is, you know, Exxon, Exxon Baytown has about 10,000 employees. And when, when we were at Suncor, we had about 35,000 employees. You can't actually walk into the field when you have 35,000 employees and already know all the people. Uh, and, and a lot of people, uh, get uncomfortable when, when, when the senior vice president shows up and wants to talk to them. But if they have a quality station or something of that sort that shows the, the visible manifestation, this, this is the company goals that you've given us. This is how we've translated it to our work area. This is what we are doing. This is what we have done. This is what we plan to do. Uh, it makes it really easy to have a conversation with somebody that you're really just meeting for the first time or maybe the second time. And, and you don't see people scurrying off when they find out that you're coming because they don't want to talk to you. And, and you don't spend your time in the field talking about hockey games or, or, or the weather. Raymond, with those stations that you had set up in your career, what, what did they look like? If you could just describe, what, what would someone see? Uh, the physical manifestation uh, depended a lot on the team. Some, some were uh, beautiful and, and some were pieces of yellow paper taped to the wall. Uh, but they all kind of had those same elements. And, and uh, it's really important that, that uh, when you're practicing autonomous improvement, where everybody has the ability to improve the way they do their own work or the way their team 
uh, does its work or the workspace that their team occupies. Uh, it's really important that all of those things are, are goal focused. Uh, so so uh, you avoid the problem where everybody has their different version of what's best. Uh, you know, some people think an improvement is that and some people think an improvement is that and at the end of the day, you don't get anything. Uh, so so you, you make sure they know what the goal is and they know what their part of the goal is. And the example I always use is you ought to be able to work, walk into the truck shop uh, at midnight on Sunday and find the guy who's repairing the engine on, on, on a haul truck uh, and say, what, what are you doing about getting a million barrels a day out of, out of this plant? And he ought to know what he's doing, what his part is. His part is to get that truck back in the mine. Uh, so so the, the elements of a quality station are what are the goals and what's your part of the goals? What are you currently doing to advance the goals? Not, not what's your day-to-day -day work, but what are you doing to advance the goals? What have you already done to advance the goals? Uh, and, and, and what are you planning to do uh, to advance the goals? And that's how those small teams come together as they begin to manage that process of transforming uh, their goals into things that they have done, things that they will do, and, and you give them enough resources and time and, and, and money, maybe some engineering help, whatever they might need, so that they can actually do the things they plan to do. Uh, but you don't give them abundant resources, just enough resources. And part of how the team comes together is when they decide for themselves which thing they're going to transform from an idea into something that they're doing. The other thing that happens with those quality stations is as they report to things they've already done, other teams can come visit and say, I could do that too. And it's, it's, it's surprising how that moves around the organization. We, we had our, 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 we made a lot of progress fast in the truck shop because when, when I first got to Suncor, their truck utilization was only about 50% because uh, the trucks were either down because they'd failed or they were down because they were waiting for maintenance. There were, there were a lot of reasons, but the trucks weren't in mine. Uh, but as they got better and better at maintenance, they began to rebuild trucks. And we were rebuilding trucks so successfully that Caterpillar actually issued our rebuilt trucks a new, a, a new serial number and a new warranty. Uh, but over in the upgrading portion, what, what, what most people would think of as a refinery, uh, we had a bunch of 30-year-old cokers that were beginning to fail. Uh, and... and the, the engineers and, and, and maintenance people from the Coker part of the plant were, were touring the, the, the truck shop and they saw that they were rebuilding their equipment instead of scrapping it and getting new equipment. They said, hey, maybe we could rebuild our Cokers instead of scrap them and get new ones. And, and, uh, for about $35 million per Coker, uh, they rebuilt all of the Cokers in the plant and, and that saved about a billion dollars of capital expense. And it was because one team got an idea from another team. Wow, that's impressive. But Raymond, it's really interesting how often that happens. Yeah, wow. Raymond, in petrochemical and mining, you know, the whole management of change in the risk side, I've often seen it that autonomous teams, it's rare. How did you manage that considering some of these traditional cultures that we both know of in mining and petrochemical? Uh, yeah, when, when, when people first began to talk about the possibility of autonomous improvement in the chemical industry, the first thing they said was, well, 
Uh, everything has to go through the Management and Change Committee. Uh, and what we very quickly learned was the key issue is, is, is defining the boundaries within which people can work. And some of them were uh, process or physical boundaries. You can't ever touch the pressure boundary on, on, on one of the big uh, uh, heated vessels. Uh, but another one was uh, we didn't want people to change the work that they did without engineering approval but we gave them freedom to change the way they did that work and the way they organized and, and, and operated the workspace or how they uh, gathered up their tools. For, for example, we had lots of uh, experience where people would decide they needed to uh, change a pump. And first thing they'd do is they'd go stand in line at the tool room and gather up all the tools and parts they thought they needed well, they'd stand at the tool room and gather the tools, and then they'd go stand at the parts window and gather the parts, and then they'd go out to the job and realize they didn't quite have everything because it's been a while since they'd done it the last time. They, they began to set up a, a, a little trailer, a, a cart, and the cart had everything you needed to change a pump. Uh, so they wouldn't go four places looking for parts and tools. They'd go to one place where there was a cart, and the cart had everything they needed, and they'd just take the cart out to the job site. Uh, and that has no safety implications at all. The guys just organized so they never had to stand in line and wait for things. And they didn't have to guess what they might need. It was all right there. Uh, and there's a hundred things that uh, every year that, that, that each person could do that has the characteristic of changing the way they do their work or the way they organize their workplace. Uh, and and there, there's no safety implications to those sorts of things at all. Uh, and, and like I said, it's, it's real quick for people to reproduce what they've seen someone else do. So after the, 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 the folks who were, were changing the rotating equipment began to have, have little carts, other people had little carts for other reasons. Uh, one of the other things we did in, in, in the truck shop, for example, we, we had 32 bays where the trucks could be serviced. And in, in the original version, uh, Every truck that needed service when its time came up, it pulled into the first open bay. And it turned out that as that set off a scramble. You know, where's the parts, where's the tools, where's the instructions? So we began to organize. You know, if, if you're coming in for your uh, regular service, you pull into this bay or that bay. There's two bays that do regular service. If you need engine work, you pull into this bay or that bay. If you need transmission work, you pull into this bay or that bay. And those bays were equipped with all the tools and all the parts and and uh, craftsmen who, who had done that a hundred times knew exactly how to do it. And, and, and they didn't need the instructions because they'd done it a lot of times. And that's just organizing the way the work is done. It doesn't change the work at all. So there's no safety implications. Well, there's some impressive improvements that frontline teams have made. Raymond, what's the, what's the main benefits of this when you get an organization in petrochemical or mining or anywhere where you've got improvement happening at all levels, right from the front line all the way up? I, I, I think the critical issue of getting everybody involved is uh, there's lots of different contributions that different groups can make. And, and uh, that's also one of the reasons that lean often is perceived to be a failure. Uh, the lean tools are really easy to understand and really easy to use. And for a manufacturing professional, they're kind of fun. Uh, and what you often find is the, the, the engineers or the managers get involved in using the tools instead of teaching other people to use the tools. 
but turns out there's things that only engineers and managers can do and the engineers and managers need to be doing those things. Uh, and, and then there's, there's a lot of things like we just discussed that everybody else can do and everybody else needs to be doing those things. Uh, and if the engineers and managers are working at, at the level where everybody else should be working, uh, first one is everybody's not doing it, so they're not involved. Second one is there's not enough engineers and managers to get the volume of improvement that you need. Uh, and third one is the engineers and managers aren't doing what only they can do. So, so it, you, your, your improvement effort isn't nearly what it should be. But if you get everybody involved, the engineers and managers are doing what they should be doing. Everybody else is doing what they can be doing. And, and, and you begin to get a true synergy. And kind of the, the analogy that I often use is in, in the early 80s, there was a big movement for autonomous workforces. And they fired all their engineers and managers and turned the factory over to other people. And the other people actually uh, successfully produced about 3% compounding annual improvement. And, and uh, most organizations that have a full range of uh, uh, people at the front line plus engineers and managers, they also produce about 3% compounding annual improvement, mostly driven by the engineers and managers. So if you get both of those, you start thinking you ought to get 6%. But what you find is, is, is that you actually begin to get something that looks more like 10%. And the reason for that is the engineers and managers can do more projects and better projects because they can turn them over to a group that's going to do the right thing with them and bring them up to, 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 to full speed. And the engineers and managers don't have to spend time doing that. And, and you also find that the improvements that the, the people at the front line make can be picked up by the engineers and managers and put into the next project. So the next projects are actually better than, than, than they would have been. Uh, so, so there's a real advantage to having every single person doing what every single person is capable of doing. Yeah, those stats are impressive. Ryan, what, you've had a good career throughout many big organizations and you're still involved in many of the big organizations. You know, people talk to you and get advice and you see good and bad in operational excellence. You were just giving examples there from the 1980s of autonomous workforce and creating improvement at all levels. Why have we still got a mixed bag of outcomes? Like, do you feel like we've progressed as a manufacturing state or do you, what do you think, where do you believe we're at now? Uh, certainly some people are progressing and, and certainly some people are beginning to understand that their competition has progressed. Uh, and and there's, there's a lag time. Uh, uh, the, the, the story that I always think about is when, when I joined General Motors in 1970, uh, they were the world's largest and most profitable industrial organization by a wide margin. There really wasn't anybody that was competing with GM in, in, in 1970. Uh, but then in 2000, uh, 2012, they went bankrupt. And, and what you see happening is, is kind of in physics, when, when you think about uh, you know, physical particles, you know, there's, there's position and there's velocity and there's acceleration. Uh, and the analogy in, in, in manufacturing is there's, there's your current position in the seriatim of, of, of goodness, and then there's the rate at which you're currently improving velocity, and the rate at which you're improving the way you improve. Uh, uh, acceleration. Uh, and if you look at those three, 
your current position and your current speed really becomes irrelevant in the long period of time because acceleration always wins. And, and I think there's some people in, in, in all industries now that are doing well, uh, and they're doing well enough that everybody else must uh, uh, get involved or, 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 or fall behind. Uh, and and it, it, there's a long cycle to that, but, but the long cycle is coming to fruition now. Well, I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying that as an organization, you're in a competitive environment. And if your acceleration of improving your improvement approach and how you actually do things isn't as fast as your competition, you're going to end up being outpaced. Exactly. And, and at some point in time, you're going to recognize that's happening to you and get serious because I, I, I really do see a tremendous number of people who spend years thinking that they're, they're, they're working in, in an operationally excellent way and, and they really have nothing to show for it. And sometimes they recognize and ask, when, you know, we've been at this six years, when will we get some results? Uh, but sometimes they just think we're doing things in an operationally excellent way. We must be excellent. Uh, in, in, in the private equity world, uh, we buy distressed assets. Distressed assets are available to buy cheaply. Then we fix them and, and either keep them for ourselves or sell them. Uh, but it's, 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 it's really stunning to go into an organization that you know is for sale for 10% of what its value should be uh, and have them try to explain to you how operationally excellent they are. Uh, you know, it, it just can't be. Nobody's going to sell an operationally excellent organization for 10% of its, its, its potential value. No. Ryan, what do you believe are the key ingredients to the companies that have high acceleration and those that don't? Same industry, same background, maybe same educated leaders. But what do you see as the key differences between the ones that are accelerating fast in petrochemical or mining and the ones that aren't? Well, you just, you just hit on another thing that I, 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 I like to tell people. Uh, I frequently encounter organizations where they, they want to tell me that they have the very best people in the industry. And, and that also really isn't true. There, there's, there's no reason at all to believe that Shell has statistically better group of people than Exxon does or, or Repsol or <laughs> Petro-Canada. Uh, People join organizations for, for other reasons than I want to join the best organization. Uh, so Shell, Exxon, PetroCanada, Repsol, they, they all have a statistically significant group of people. They have some really good ones. They have some that they not, prefer not to have, and they, they have a, a large number of good, honest, hardworking people. The thing that really distinguishes their performance is the systems that that group of people are given to work with. And, and that includes a, a, a wide variety of things. Uh, and that, that's the reason both my books have the word culture in the title. Uh, giving people the tools isn't enough. You, you have to give them the, the goals to pursue and you have to translate the goals so that they know what their part of that is. Uh, you have to give them some time to work on improvement, not just the time to do the job that they have. You have to give them some access to other resources, maybe a little bit of money, maybe a little bit of engineering help, whatever it is. You have to give them a, a, a team and some rules by which that team works. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's things that you have to give people, goals, skills, time, resources. Uh, 
and, and you kind of have to demonstrate that uh, you're interested in, in, in the culture and interested in the team. And, and, and uh, we've done some, some things that were, were interesting. Uh, for example, both Exxon and Suncor, uh, very early on we told people that, that none of our employees would lose their employment as a result of the improvements. They might lose their employment because of bad behavior. They might lose their employment because of economic conditions beyond our control, but they wouldn't lose their employment because of the improvements. Uh, and that resulted in some Exxon people doing odd things for a while and, and, and until the, the work caught up with them. It resulted in a lot of contractors in our various sites losing their employment or at least moving to other uh, places where they would be contractors. But we clearly demonstrated that we had the interest of the team in mind. Uh, we also did some interesting things related to workforce diversity. In, in, in 1991, we started a group at Exxon Baytown. We called ourselves the Diversity Pioneers, and that, that we were exactly what that sounds like. Uh, we talked about race, we talked about gender, we talked about national origin, we talked about sex, we talked about sexual preferences, and we actually did things. And, and some of the things we did were interesting. Uh, Exxon is a very fair organization, and for decades there was absolutely no uncertainty that when there was a promotional opportunity, they picked the best person. They didn't, no other consideration, they picked the best person. But what we found was there was a lot of inequality in the way it was possible for a person to become the best person. You know, things like uh, uh, training, things like development assignments, things like backfilling for the supervisor, all those things had to be brought under control. So we took control not of the process of picking the best person, but we took control of developing people to be the best person. And, and that was all new to people. Uh, and, and, and they recognized what we were doing. We were building a strong team. Uh, and those sorts of things are important because uh, you're going to ask people to do something they haven't done before. And they, they need to, you know, uh, it's like the old joke, the most powerful broadcasting station in the world is WIIFM. What, what's in it for me? Uh, and, and there is something in it for them. And I have to tell you, uh, I said earlier that the tools are easy to understand and easy to use and, and a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of people really enjoy having the improvement process, making their own work better, making their own workplace better. Uh, and they enjoy the quality stations where they get a chance to talk about that, not only with management, but among themselves and with their colleagues. Uh, an anecdote that's in my first book, uh, at, at, at Exxon Baytown, there was, uh, uh, there was a really big man. <laughs> he, he, he was a really big man. Uh, and he, he came up to me one day and he put his arm around my shoulders and, and, and he said, you know, when you first told me I had to have a quality station, I really hated it. But, but if you told me I couldn't have it anymore, I'd have to beat you to death. <laughs> that would be a scary conversation. Uh, uh, I, I knew him and liked him, but it was, it was interesting how uh, in his own way, he was expressing the fact that he not only accepted the changes, but he, he, he valued the changes. Yeah, that must have been an inspiring moment. Yeah. Ram, what, what has inspired you to keep working in this field throughout your career and leading these types of approaches? Uh, 
what's in it for me? Uh, I, I, uh, I often, especially today and in, in, in what I'm doing today, we enter organizations that are distressed and, and uh, yeah, I never say bad things about Exxon, but the, the, the former president of Exxon Chemical actually wrote in the forward for my first book that when I got to, to, to Baytown, it was considered a very troubled organization. Uh, and, and when you can take a, a distressed organization or a troubled organization, and, and, uh, I got to Baytown in, in 1991 and in 1993, we became the first uh, process industry uh, organization to be designated as one of America's 10 best by Industry Magazine. That two year period, you could see people change. You could, you, you could see that what, what, what you were doing was changing people's lives, not just changing the performance of the organization, but changing the lives of the people in that organization. Uh, and that's a really satisfying experience if, if, if you can do that, and especially if you can get good enough at it that you can do it with some confidence as, as, as you enter a continuing series of new organizations. Uh, turns out each of the last organizations that I personally led received some form of public recognition as the best of their kind. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a nice record. It's, and it stretches back uh, almost 30 years now. Yeah, that's neat. And I can, you know, Raymond, I can hear from that conversation you mentioned about that large chap, big bloke who gave you, put his arm around you and spoke about the quality wall that you inspired him. Who are some people that have inspired you over the years? Like who are those mentors to you that have helped you? Uh, no, no uncertainty to, kind of at the top of that list is Gene McBrayer. Uh, Gene was president of Exxon Chemical when, when, when they recruited me out of General Motors. Uh, and he not only allowed us to do things that were uh, uh, heresy in the chemical industry in, in, in those days. Uh, you know, in, in 91, nobody else was talking about uh, uh, diversity and doing something about diversity. Uh, nobody else was talking about autonomous improvement. And Gene not only let me do it, he, he encouraged it. Uh, gave, gave me a forum to talk to other parts of the company about it, that sort of thing. Uh, and and uh, it, uh, he, he, he was a real inspiration, just uh, uh, a, a true Southern gentleman in every, every manner of the word, a true leader in every manner of the word. Uh, and and uh, he... he he let us do things that, that, that nobody else would have possibly allowed to, uh, allowed to happen. So he empowered and trusted you to be able to lead your direction. And then I, I can understand from this conversation, you then empowered and trusted others to develop them and help them lead their direction right down to the front line. That, that's how it has to work. Uh, the, the North American and, and, and Western Europe is very similar. The North American, Western Europe average for employee participation is uh, one idea, a suggestion, from every seven people one time a year adopted at a 20% rate. I got those statistics from, from the uh, North American, uh, what do they call themselves? Uh, there, there's a name, I, I forget. Uh, but that ends up being like 0.024 actual improvements per person per year. Uh, you know, at Exxon Baytown, after two years, we're getting 35 improvements per person per year. Uh, so so uh, 
And that's, that's, I hate to use this analogy, but that's kind of like counting deaths in, in, in the virus, huh? You, uh, you, you can't argue about it. You either got an improvement, you know, you know, nothing, to, nothing to talk about except you did or you didn't get an improvement. Uh, but we were actually getting more than a thousand times the national average of improvements per person per year, and there's hardly anything you can do that's going to be a thousand times better than average. Uh, and they don't have to be big improvements. You know, creating the tool cart for your pumps, uh, as, as, as assigning a particular bay to your to your trucks. Those are relatively small, easy things to do, but they they they, they have a, a nice outcome. And you get thirty five of those from each person every year. You got thirty five thousand. You know, at, at, at uh, Suncor, we had thirty five thousand people. Uh, we were making improvements all the time. Well, that's, that is velocity and that is acceleration. Exactly. Raymond, I know one of the challenges that the petrochemical industry is facing is how to navigate the coming years with change that could happen. What advice or insights do you have that you could provide them that may help them navigate the coming years? Oh, everybody that's currently in the, 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 the uh, energy petrochemical space understands that the uh, the product of the energy petrochemical space is generally a commodity. Uh, and and the, the, the nature of a commodity market is, is such that uh, when demand approaches capacity, maybe exceeds capacity, uh, the prices rise until the last person that needs to enter the market in order to make a profit uh, will make a profit. The last person that enters the market in order to fill demand will make a profit. Uh, and of course, the people who are really good make lots of money at that point. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, and, and this is kind of what you see coming for the next few years, demand's going to drop off a little bit. And as demand starts uh, receding away from capacity, there's excess capacity, uh, the prices drop until the best person makes a profit. And the, the, the other people are kind of scrambling among themselves to see who, who fills the remaining capacity after the best person has sold all they can sell. Uh, and, and a lot of them are going to drop out or, or, or a lot of them are going to lose money. And, and you can see that coming. Uh, so the advice for uh, people who are in the commodity business is now's the time to become as good as you can be because there's going to be a day when the, only the really good people are successful. Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Raymond, what, what advice would you give to a young leader or a leader in one of these heavy industries, mining or petrochemical, who wants to start a journey that you're talking about? What advice would you give them right out of the gate? Uh, first thing they ought to do is get a couple books and, 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 and read up on the technology. It's not complex. It's not hard. Like I said, most people actually think it's enjoyable. Uh, but you ought to know what you're doing. Uh, and, and, and then you ought to think about the elements of the culture. You know, do, do, do you really have a goal, a goal for a few years in the future, not, not what you're going to do the next six months or tomorrow? What do you, what do you expect to achieve over a couple of years? Uh, can you tell everybody what their part of the goal is? So, so that if, uh, if your goal is to make a million barrels a day, uh, so the guy who's working on a truck Sunday night knows that his part of that goal is to get the truck back in the mine. You know, because a million barrels a day doesn't mean anything to him, but get the truck back in the mine, he understands that. Uh, 
So, so goals and translated goals and, and then be prepared to give people some resources. If, if, if you're consuming all their time, then they don't have any time to work on, on, on improvement. And especially if, if they need to coordinate their improvement, uh, uh, you know, if you need to coordinate the, the, the team that's, that's replacing a pump with the people in the tool room and the people in the, in, in, in the parts room and the people in the, in, in the uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, uh, purchasing, maybe warehouse, maybe uh, maintenance, then they have to not only have some time, they have to have some coordinated time. So, so there's some, some of that stuff to do. Uh, so getting, then, then begin teaching them the tools that they, they need for the improvement that they're going to undertake. Don't, don't mass train everybody on everything because they'll forget before they need it. But teach them how to do the things that they, they have set out to do. Uh, and make some resources available to them to, to help them figure out maybe there's some other tools they could use but you know, it's it's all a process of giving people the things that they need to have in order to do what you'd like them to do. Don't worry if you're not at the top of your organization. Uh, do this in your part of the organization, and uh, your part of the organization will will, will improve. I mean, maybe somebody will notice, and you'll get a chance to do <laughs> a chance at a bigger role sometime in the future. And you can then inspire others on on the site too to help them start moving forward. Exactly, and and, and uh, don't try and do everything all at once. Start off with 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 the team. When the team has their their good example, then break that team up and let them lead other teams and uh, uh, build outward exponentially from there. Right. Raymond, with where you're at now, what is something that you've learned recently that you didn't know before? What's been a recent insight you've had? Uh, Probably a reaffirmation of, of, of the insight we talked about earlier, and that is uh, it's really surprising how many people think they're actually practicing operational excellence uh, when they aren't. I was at a meeting of, of the board of directors of a very large company uh, not, not, not very long ago, and I made my presentation on, on, on the sort of things we've just been talking about. And they, they, they had a consultant from uh, a major consulting company, and he made a presentation on what, what he was proposing. And, and the first thing that popped into my mind was, man, if, if, if you missed the 1950s, you want to go see what he's got to offer. Uh, so there, there's still people who are offering uh, 1950s vintage uh, practices uh, and calling that today's operational excellence. And it really isn't. They're, they're, uh, so you have to be careful uh, who, who you talk with about uh, operational excellence and make sure you're actually getting the current version. Yeah, and I can really understand from our conversation today that a key caveat of that is do you set that clear goal and direction and help everyone understand it and the part they play and then form that improvement at all levels of the organization so that you end up with that greater velocity and acceleration. Yeah, and that, that absolutely requires that your engineers and managers learn it and teach it to others and then go back to doing what they're supposed to be doing because there are things that only they can do. Only they can bring real, real expert engineering. Only they can bring corporate scale resources. So, 
So, you know, they, they, they need to be doing those things because that's an important part of advancing the organization. They can't be doing the things that everybody else ought to be doing. Yeah, so through that empowerment process you've been talking about, Raymond, you also then in leadership and engineering create time because you're not the bottleneck then. You're, you haven't got everything you need to handle yourself. Yeah, and, and that's another part of demonstrating to the organization that you're serious about uh, protecting their jobs while they make improvements. Uh, if a group uh, uh, causes an improvement and now they don't need 12 people, they only need 11, uh, find something interesting for that 11, for, for that 12th person to do. Uh, maybe it's go to another team and teach them. Uh, there, there, there's, there's a lot of different things that you can do. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, at Baytown, we had a wide variety of product lines, and, and even the goals within the product lines were interesting. So, for example, uh, one of our goals for the whole site was to improve the capability and capacity of our operations. And, and for some groups, that meant increase the volume. For some groups, that meant uh, in, in, increase the quality. Uh, you know, uh, for other groups, it meant drop the cost. Uh, so that. Uh, the, our big goal of improving the capacity and capability of the plant translated to different things in different parts of the plant, depending on what they needed. And, and, and then they carry that on throughout their own organization. Uh, but there's a lot of different things that you can do, uh, uh, improving quality, improving volume, improving efficiency. Uh, and, and, and you have to figure out which ones you need. And what's most important, depending on the team, like you were just saying, I, I understand. Exactly. Raymond, I really appreciate the insights you've shared. I've learned a lot and gained a lot of value from our conversation. How can people find out more about you and your books and potentially reach out to you? Uh, the, 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 the books are, are all available uh, uh, from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my friends at Amazon sell everything. I'm, su- I'm surprised. But, uh, yeah, the books are all available from Amazon. Uh, I, I'm... I'm uh, I'm present on, on LinkedIn, uh, and generally, if, 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 if uh, uh, somebody wants to, wants to connect with me, I'm, I'm, I'm available to connect. Uh, the meeting, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about uh, private equity, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a very generous uh, uh, occupation. Uh, so the, the meeting I, I told you about with, with the big company, uh, one of the questions I asked him, I said, who, who here is working today? And everybody put up their hand. I said, I'm not. I'm the only, room, I'm the only person in the room who's, who's not being paid to be here. Uh, and that's because I'm here for you and not for me. And, and, and I have the ability to do that these days. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I actually, uh, in, in my second book, there's, there's a quote in there uh, from a person who's on a pit crew uh, at the Indianapolis 500. And he, he gave me an interesting statistic, which was uh, for, for about a 20-year period, the actual time difference between the first and second place car was less than the time difference between uh, the pit stops for the first car and the pit stops for the second car. They actually won the race in the pits. Wow. And it made me think that Shell and Exxon and, and, and all the big companies probably run their equipment about the same. Uh, very few of those big companies design their own equipment, Shell and Exxon, and 
that we all run for uh, uh, cokers. Yeah, so it comes down uh, to the pit stop and how we keep them running that counts. Uh, yeah, kind of like you know, all, all the Indianapolis 500 cars meet exactly the same specifications. So there's some amount of variation among drivers, which is important. Some amount of variation among pit crews, which is important. But the cars are basically the same. Yeah, yeah, that's an that's an interesting analogy. It's so true. Yeah, that's neat. Well, Raymond, thank you for sharing and giving today to help us create a better future. From your knowledge, it's been amazing. And thank you for everything you're going to continue to do going forward. I really appreciate it. Yeah, look, look, look forward to watching your podcast in the future. What a great episode from Mr. Raymond Lloyd. The key takeaways for me from this episode were respecting and engaging all people in an organization, helping everyone within an organization understand their company's goals, purpose, and mission, and then helping everyone develop their own aligned goals and purpose. These steps would allow employees to understand strategic direction and align to these. It would engage everyone with a bigger purpose and clear reason why they are striving to improve strategically. This approach helps the whole organization embrace change rather than resisting it. Thank you again, Raymond. Amazing episode. Thank you for sharing knowledge and helping us create a better future. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. We'll be taking a few weeks break over Christmas and be returning with episode 17 on the 12th of January 2021 and the start of series two of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It has been such an honor talking to so many amazing experts focused on creating a better future economically, environmentally, and socially for generations to come. Experts in many differing fields helping organizations create cultures of innovation, continuous improvement, safety, and so much more. I've also been humbled by the positive feedback I have had from you, the listeners. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Emily and I are so glad you are gaining value from the shows. We are pleased that the knowledge shared is helping you create a better future within your own organization. Have a great festive season. We hope you get to spend quality time with your family and loved ones. We look forward to being back talking to you again soon in the new year. Bye for now.